along here. We are, we're good, Josh. We're in the book of Ruth. Um, and if you need a copy of the, uh, the outline, uh, Chris has got some extras. You can raise a hand. I think some of these folks over here might need it, Chris. Uh, simple book, four chapters, so I, uh, I'm trusting my, my, my big mouth that I'll be able to get through all four chapters. I don't know these days, but um, it's, it's just a great book. It's just, it's just, man, I mean, I had so much stuff written down on my margins of, of, of this book because it's just, it's such a rich book. Uh, you see the vital statistics on the top of your uh of your handout there, four chapters, 85 verses, 2,574 words. Uh, if you want to read the first verse of the book, very telling. It's going to locate us as to where we are. It says, now it came to pass, this is verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. So if you want to put this in your like Bible timeline, Ruth is showing us what is happening during the time of the judges. So when there is no king in Israel, this is what's happening in the background, right? We think the Bible is like, you know, just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and there's a lot of stuff sometimes happening in gaps. So we go from Judges, which is apostasy, to Samuel, which is where the kingdom is beginning to be formed, but Ruth is kind of like that bridge from apostasy to King David, from Judges to Samuel. And the great theme of the book is the romance of redemption, it's a love story. It's really Jesus Christ's love affair with his church, which Ruth is a great picture of. And because it's about that love affair of redemption, Jesus Christ is pictured, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, our kinsman redeemer. That's the great picture of Jesus Christ, that member of the family that is able to redeem us. And um, if you look at verse number four, it says at the end of verse four, uh, speaking of Ruth and Naomi and the gang, they dwelt there about 10 years. So the span of the book is about 10 years, right? From approximately 1322 to approximately 1312 BC. And it covers that 10 years time. And um, Samuel is often attributed as the author, but it's, it's not really, you know, I wouldn't hang my hat on that. But if you had to say, who do you think the author is? Most people say Samuel, um, but again, that's like a, not a big deal. Uh, Ruth is only one of two books, right, uh, named after a woman, right, which is interesting, right? Ruth and Esther. And Ruth is, you've got a, uh, a Gentile woman marrying a Jew, right, or a Hebrew, I should say, and it's a picture of the church age, Right? <laughs> okay. I call you Ruth, all right. I'm gonna call you Boaz from now on, all right. <laughs> He's got a nice field, Eli. I've seen it, all right. And uh, Esther is gonna be now a Jewess who's gonna marry a Gentile, and that's more of a picture of the tribulation. So we have these two books that are very interesting, very telling about these two different ladies. Um, and uh, if you'll see on your sheet there, there is a cast of characters in the book of Ruth that really, uh, he's got some extras there, some extras there. He's, th th these characters really picture a lot of different people, which we'll unpack during our study tonight. Elimelech, this is Naomi's husband, is a picture of God the Father. Uh, Malin and Chilion, these are uh, Elimelech's children. They picture the Old Testament the Law and the Prophets. Naomi pictures Israel. Ruth pictures the church. Boaz pictures Jesus Christ. Orpah pictures lost Gentiles. And Moab pictures the enemies of God. And the breakdown is pretty simple. There's only four chapters. 
So it's really chapters 1 and 2 is Ruth and Naomi, and chapters 3 and 4 is Boaz to Ruth. So let's dive into it now. Let's get into some of the pictures and the principles that this book really gives us. Let's go to Ruth 1, verse number 1. Great start here. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Now watch this. Underline these next two words. And a certain man, those two words, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. I want you to notice right now that the story begins with a certain man named Elimelech going on a journey. And that really establishes Elimelech as a great picture of God the Father. You see how he goes off the scene and Naomi, Israel, is left by herself. That's a picture of what Israel is going through during this church age, right? God the Father has withdrawn himself from Israel and she's kind of like in this bitterness, this Mara that she complains about, this affliction that she's dealing with and her life will be restored at the end. But that phrase, a certain man, if you trace that phrase, a certain man, through the parables that Jesus gave the nation of Israel, that certain man is always picturing God the Father. I'll give you a couple of verses you could write down if you want, or just listen. Matthew 21, 28, I'm not going to flip there. Jesus talks about a certain man had two sons. He's speaking about God the Father. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus gives another parable in Mark 12, verse 1. He says, a certain man planted a vineyard. Again, he's pointing to God the Father. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, when Jesus is giving all those great parables about the good shepherd and about the, uh, the, the woman with the coin, he says, a certain man had two sons. Again, another picture of God the Father. So, it's pretty established that Elimelech looks like and pictures and stands in for God the Father. And you look at verse 3, you see what happens. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, because Israel is married to God the Father, right? Jehovah's wife is Israel. Christ's wife is the church. Elimelech, it says right there, Naomi's husband died and she was left and her two sons. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. That's what his name means. My God is king. And right at the beginning of the book, which is a picture of the church age, Elimelech goes off the scene. What do we know about the book of Judges? There is no king in Israel. So the guy whose name says, my God is king, is gone. And Naomi is left by herself. And look what happens in verse number five, all right? I don't know what I want to write on the board. I'm getting ready for next week. All right, uh, Ruth 1.5. And Malin and Chilion died also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech pictures God the Father. Malin and Chilion, just stay with me now, they picture the Old Testament. Now, now follow my reasoning. When God is not their king anymore, Israel loses the law and the prophets. They lose connection to the word that God gave them. Notice Elimelech dies first. God the Father just kind of moves out of the scene. And then the connection that Israel has to the word of God, which is encapsulated by the law and the prophets. That's really how Jesus summed up the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets were until John. Malin and Chilion move off the scene. Their names mean sickly and puny. 
That's what their names mean. So they die also. They picture the Old Testament law God gave to Israel. What am I saying? Think about it. When Israel loses her connection to the Father, she loses her connection to His words. Right? Unto Israel were committed the oracles of God. But Eli will be the first one to teach me this. During this church age, most Jews have no knowledge of the Scriptures that were even given to their nation. I mean, God gave their nation the Word of God, and today if you speak to the average, you know, professing Jewish individual, they don't know much of anything. They know some Talmud, they know a little bit of tradition, but they don't know Exodus like you know Exodus. They don't know numbers like you know numbers. They don't even look at books like Isaiah. They've lost their connection to the Word that God gave them. Why? Because they lost their connection to the God who gave them His words. Now, Those are some pictures in the first chapter. Let me give you some principles. This is a little bit of preaching here. Verse 5. We just read, they died, right? Actually, let's just read for verse uh, verse 1. Now it came to pass, I'm not going to read it again. Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5. You know the principle is? Never leave the house of bread for a wash pot. Bethlehem, Judah, Elimelech left Bethlehem Judah, which means house of bread, to go to Moab, which means wash pot, which means a place of stagnation, which means a place of no growth. It's like that place where the dirty water runs off in your little sink going down the drain. They would wash their dishes in a wash pot. God said, Moab is my wash pot. And Elimelech, you know, it gets a little bumpy in Bethlehem Judah because there's a famine. And instead of riding it out and waiting on what God would do, he runs to the enemy's land and he and his sons die. Lesson don't leave the house of bread for a wash pot. I mean, I know it sounds self-serving, but don't leave the church where the Word of God, the bread, is being taught and preached and declared because things look a little famine for a little while because you're going to go to a place and something in your life is going to die. You're going to lose the blessing. Malin, Chilean, Elimelech, they die. They fade off the scene. Let me look at verse 1 and 2 again. Let's read verse 2. We read verse 1 before. Let me show you in verses 1 and 2 is the wrong choice, right? And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his sons, Malin and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. So there's their wrong choice, leaving Bethlehem, Judah for the land of the enemy. Never works out good. I know it works out good in the beginning. And you let everybody know that you're doing great. Everybody's, I'm doing great. I'm sure you are, but I know you're not. And I know you won't in time. I don't know. Maybe it was a little while that Elimelech bought a house, got established. He and his son started like a car wash or something like that. I don't know what they were doing over there. But something's going to die because God's word will never fail. If you leave the house of bread where the word of God is being taught and preached, that's the picture, you're going to head out to the enemy's land and yet something's going to die. Something's going to die. So don't, don't jump. Uh, look at verse number three. Look at verse three. Three to five shows us the fearful consequences of leaving the house of bread. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth and they dwelled there about 10 years and Malin and Chilion died also, both of them. So it took some time. But then Malin and Chilion die, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. This is the fearful consequences. You say, what are the fearful consequences of leaving the house of bread? Death, 
and desolation. Something is going to die in your life and you're going to be left empty of something you had before. Everybody has ever stepped out of church, we could sadly testify that it didn't get better, it got worse. Walked away from the brethren, walked away from the fellowship of the saints, walked away from where the hot bread was coming. Hey, the people that are flawed that are delivering it, but they're doing the best they can to try to teach, whether it's in discipleship, whether it's in Bible study, whether it's in a class, whether it's on, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to do. This is not the only place I know bread is coming out. I know bread is happening in your conversations. Bread is happening on the men's text group. Bread is happening at a men's meeting, a ladies' meeting, a Sunday school class. We are in the business of just getting God's bread out. And if people are going to forsake the place where God's bread is being doled out, something's going to die. And something in your life that was rich before will be desolate when God wanted to bless it. That's a picture. Man, we learned, I learned that from Pastor Dean years and years ago. It's a great principle. Here's another principle in chapter 1. Look down at verse 12. Are you a real possessor or a mere professor? Okay? Are you a real possessor like Ruth or a mere professor like Orpah? Let's look at the account. Let's look at verse 12. Uh, now, we know what happens. Naomi's bitter and upset, and she says, you know, girls, go back to Moab, go back to your gods, go get yourself a nice guy. I'm just going to sit here and cry in my beer for the rest of the barley harvest. You know, she's just, you know, she just sends them away. And she says in verse 12, Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. So who are you, brethren? When the going gets tough, are you a real possessor like Ruth? Are you a mere professor like Orpah? Do you know Orpah? You know Orpah. Orpah's name means stubbornness. That's what her name means, stubbornness. You know what Orpah is? Orpah kisses Naomi, but she has no commitment. There's a lot of people in the church house like that. There's a lot of people among the professors like that. They say nice things. They give you kisses. But when push comes to shove, they're out. They're going to go back to their gods. They're going to go back to their land. They're going to go back to their stuff. And they're not going to bat an eye about it. There's a lot of people, man, a lot of people like that. I'm not talking to you, you're the choir. But there's a lot of people out there that are kissers and professors. That's Orpah. Orpah had no problem going back to her gods, going back to her pagan nonsense, because, well, i got to do what's best for me. That's Orpah. That's Orpah. Her name means stubbornness. Now, Ruth, see, Orpah's the denier. Ruth is the decider. You know what the word decide means? A decision, just if you want a little English lesson, a decision means you cut off your other options. Like an incision cuts in, a decision cuts from, cuts off, cuts away. So when you make a decision, you're cutting off your other options. You're not like Orpah. Orpah never made a decision. Orpah professed, oh, I'm going to miss you so much. Oh, you've been so good to me, Naomi. But I'll see you when I see you. Right? That's 
Hope I bump into you sometime. It'd be nice to see you sometime. Maybe we'll run into each other in the barley field. But she's out. She didn't decide. She denied. When push came to shove, she went back. She was doing this. Ruth made a decision to cut off her other options. And if you look at verse number 16 or 15, look at, the, look at Ruth. Ruth's name means friendship. And Ruth wanted to be that friend of God. She cleaves to Naomi. 15, um, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Right? So she's going all the way back in. It's not just, oh, I'm out of church, I'm a, you know, but I still read my Bible. No, you went back to your gods. And she says, Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, capital G, my God, capital G. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. Man, if Ruth pictures the church, I want to be a Christian like Ruth. Just like, Lord... I'm with you till the end of the line. I'm with you to the end of the Lord Jesus. I'm not throwing my chips overboard. I'm not tucking tail for anything else. Whatever it is, Lord, I'm with you to the end. That's Ruth's attitude. And it's just a blessing. It's provoking to me to see it. Because you know how many times my flesh wants to quit? Wants to like close the Bible, wants to like walk away, wants to go back and hide in a cave. I mean, I'm I'm transparent, right? If you've never been there, then God bless you. You're more spiritual than I am. But you know, you go through things and you just want to like ditch and you want to dip on God. And Ruth says, no, no, I, I lost my husband. Think about that. I lost my husband. I lost everything. I left my God. How can I go back? No, I'm with you. I want your God to be my God. Ruth made a decision. What a blessing. Let's go to chapter, verse 19 now. His one last thing in uh, verse 19 is uh, the sad confession of Naomi. We can't forget Naomi. See verse 19? So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitterness, right? Like the waters of Mara, the bitter waters in the book of Exodus. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and the Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Please notice that the sad confession of Naomi is the sad testimony of Israel without her king. That's the testimony of Israel today. Naomi's name means pleasant, but she wanted to be called bitter. That's why she says that in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And verse 21 is sad. She goes, I went out full. Think about Israel's history under David, under Solomon, what they did with Moses. Think about how full Israel once was with God. Man, they were the head and not the tail. They were the the prince of the nations with God. And they will be again one day. But how bitter their lives have been without him. Man. You don't have to go too far back in history and see how bitter 
Israel's path has been. I'm not just talking about the Holocaust, what happened in Russia, the pogroms, the violence, being chased from this place to that place. I mean, we think it's just Adolf Hitler that was an abomination and a detriment to Israel. That might have been the worst thing that ever happened to them until the Antichrist takes, takes the lead. But they've gone through generations and generations of roaming around in ghettos and being chased from country and having violent... I mean, anti-Semitism didn't start in Germany. It's been around a long time. They've had a bitter, bitter life because they were away from God, right? Verse 21, she, she says the word afflicted. Naomi says, I've been afflicted. You know what happens to the nation of Israel? Affliction. God lets them get afflicted to get their heart to turn back to them. Isn't that what God does with Hosea? Right? Hosea is another great picture of God the Father trying to woo his wayward wife, Hosea, back to himself. And he lets Hosea go into the wilderness, deal with things. Why? So that she might return to her husband. It even says in the beginning of Hosea, uh, for then, let me return into my first husband, for then was it better with me than it is now. God lets them go through that pig pen so that they come back to God. That making sense? Now, verse 22, what happens? We're now at the end of the book of Judges. You understand this, right? Because the 10 years have passed. We're kind of at the end of the chronology of Ruth. And they're going back. You see the picture? Because Israel goes back to the land, right? It it's happened a couple of times. It happened in Ezra and Nehemiah after the captivity. They got to go back to the land. And what happened in 1918 with that Balfour Declaration? What happened in 1948? They went back to the land. They're back there now. Why? Because they're getting ready for God to bring the king. You see how this whole ends up? They're going back to the land, and the king is coming. In 1 Samuel, the king is coming. There's going to be a bad king first named Saul, and then the rightful king is going to come, and Israel is going to be restored. It really is like God wrote the Bible. It's an amazing, amazing book. Let's go to chapter 2. So chapter 1 was God's rest forsaken and Ruth deciding. That's on your sheet. Chapter 2 says um, it's God's rest desired and Ruth is now serving. See verse 1? And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So if we keep calling you Boaz, Eli, we're going to think you're loaded, right? So because Boaz was a wealthy man. But notice, notice, <laughs> he's going to rethink that maybe. Uh, ice cream's on him. Notice through, through Naomi, Ruth finds the Savior. See that? What did, what did the book of John tell us? Salvation is of the Jews, right? I found through a Jewish book, I found who the Savior was. And through Naomi, because of her connection to Ruth, she finds a redeemer. Amen? Aren't you, gl- aren't you Gentiles glad? <laughs> I'm glad. I got a Jewish book and a Jewish Savior, and it was through that. Uh, that's why we always love the Jewish people. That's why it's so wrong for us to ever get into that anti-Semitic, like, Jew-hating stuff. I don't even like saying that word Jew sometimes with the wrong tone in my voice, right? I, I prefer Hebrew, right? You know, because like, it's got like a tone to it. And, and we're supposed to love the Jewish people. We're supposed to pray for the Jewish people. Why? Because that's the apple of God's eye. And through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Through their existence, the word of God is in front of me today. So I, I'm not going to, I got grafted into something that they're a part of. So I, you know, let's not get too 
He says, be not high-minded, but fear, you Gentiles, Romans chapter 12. But in Romans, uh, Ruth chapter 2, you see uh, some things about Boaz. You see, he was of the family. Boaz was a near kinsman, like Jesus Christ. That's why he's pictured as our kinsman redeemer, because he's in the same family, right? Notice in verse 3, it says that Boaz, at the end of the verse, was of the kindred of Elimelech. So he was related by birth to, to Elimelech. That's why he could redeem Elimelech's house. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Do you know Jesus Christ is of the same family? And Jesus Christ is related to us by birth. That's why he could redeem us. If he was never born as a man, how could he redeem men? Look at Hebrews chapter 2, a familiar verse in Hebrews 2.14. I'll let you flip a little bit. There's so much in Ruth, I'm not going to have you flip to a lot, but this is a good verse. Hebrews 2.14, the Bible says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Anybody here partaker of flesh and blood? Yes, that's all of you. You didn't have to raise your hand. If you didn't, I'll speak to you afterwards. He also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ was willing to be born of a virgin, but still to be born as a man. Why? To redeem men. Right? Born under the law to redeem them that were under the law. That's a great Savior. You know none of the other religions think that way? Allah had no son. There's a great chick track called Allah Had No Son, but because Allah had no son. The thought of Allah, I'm going to get strikes on my channel, I know. But the, the thought that that God, that moon God, had a son that would die for the sins of his people is foreign and blasphemous to the largest religion in the world. All the other ones, Brahma, uh, Shiva, Hunky-dory, all the 33 million gods of the Hindu pantheon, none of them begot a god that would come down and dwell as flesh to die for the sins of man, right? This is, this is, only the Bible has this account. Only the Bible has, that's why there's only two religions in the world. God's religion and the devil's religion. Everything else is, you know, God's up there, you're down here, and hopefully you get to him. God's religion is, God's up there, but he came down here so you could get to him. Praise the Lord for him. What a great God. Uh, Go back to Ruth chapter 2. You still with me? All right. Ruth chapter 2. Let me squint. See what time it is. Ruth chapter 2. Let's keep going. And verse 4, of all things, and Danny touched on some of these things. I'm trying not to retread what you preached a few months ago, Danny. But Ruth chapter 2, verse number 4, it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Hello. (laughs) I know about a Savior that was born and came from Bethlehem. Right? Micah chapter 5, Luke chapter 2 tells me about that, that one that came out of Bethlehem to be a ruler. Uh, let's look at verse number 2. So Ruth finds the Savior in verse 1, and then look what happens in verse 2. Look what happens right away. Ruth is a servant in verse 2. She finds the Savior in verse 1, and she's serving in verse 2. Isn't that amazing? Elimelech shows up in her life in verse 1, and in verse 2, she's out there in the field. You know, like Ruth, we start serving as soon as we're saved. We don't always do a good job, but the clock starts. Once you punch that card that says, I want to get saved, God says, you're on my workforce now. See Ruth 2.2, And Ruth the Moabite has said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. 
Notice, please, you see in verse number three, and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. We go to the Savior's field. Why did she go? To take part in the harvest. Why do we serve? Why? To look spiritual? No, we're trying to get more harvest. We're trying to bring in more, we're trying to bring in more souls for Jesus Christ. We're trying to build some other Christians up so they can go out and do it again. That's what we're trying to do. We're not just laboring. You got to remember, why do we do this thing called church? Why do we do this stuff called tracting? Why do we do this thing called preaching? Why do we do this thing called discipleship? To build up some trees of righteousness who can bear some fruit that could then multiply and keep doing that. Why? So we could bring forth fruit unto God because here it is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. We're trying to get some harvest for our great God who's trying to bring in those sheaves. That's why we go out there. And verse number six, look what it says. And the servant that was set over the reaper's answered and said, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. So she finds the Savior in verse 1. She starts serving in verse 2. And we see that we have the Spirit of God directing the servants in the labor. That's the nameless servant. That's a picture of the Spirit of God who's administrating what we do. Listen, everything we do is supposed to be led by the Spirit of God. Right? The Spirit of God is the administrator of the church, not me or the deacons or anybody else who's been saved a length of time. The administrator of the church, the boss of the church, is the Holy Spirit of God. We want to make sure we keep checking in with Him because that's the Spirit of Christ. It's His Spirit, the Spirit of a dead man, a Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, right? That's who He is. And we're checking in with Him before we go out on Saturdays. We're checking in with Him before we do Bible study on Wednesday. Uh, th- what day is it? Thursdays. We're checking in with Him before we have a service on Sundays because it's easy to start motoring along and leave the Holy Spirit of God. Mel Sabaka used to say, Pastor Mel used to say, 75% of Bible churches, you could take the Holy Spirit of God and the machinery would just keep right on clicking. And nobody would know the Holy Spirit was even gone. Just like Samson, who's a picture of the Laodicean church who wist not that the Spirit was departed from him. Man, it's good to come to prayer meeting. It's good to pray on your own. It's good to, before you give your laundry list, just fall down on your face, say, Lord, except you intervene and do something, we are lost without you. That's a great confession. Lord, this church will fold, will bite and devour each other, will kill each other, will ruin your testimony if your spirit doesn't guide us into all truth. Even tonight. Right? You think my oratory is going to apply the Word of God to your soul? No. You've got to sit there and pray for me and pray for yourself. Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Holy Spirit, don't let me limit you. Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. Because Jesus said that's what He's going to come to do after I'm God. He's going to lead you and teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. We need the Holy Spirit like they needed Him in that field. Verse number 7, watch this. And she said, I pray you, Isn't the book of Ruth rich? Man, it's rich. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. That's the servant's report to Boaz. Please notice that Ruth gathered gleanings. The reapers came through and got the good stuff, and she's just picking up, like, you know, the scraps, the scrums, right? The, The gleanings, right? What they would drop. Please notice that that's where we are right now. We're in the Laodicean church. We're coming in after the reapers. 
the reapers came in before us. The Philadelphian church age where they came in and went around the world and went around, I think, several times the gospel went around the world, all the great missionaries, the church of the open door, you know, the John Pattons and the Hudson Taylors and all that stuff that happened in that great time period. Those were the reapers, man. Those, you know, we are at the end of this church age, we're gleaners. We're trying to get a few more people saved. We're trying to just niche somebody as stone, build some people over here, but just I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm not. I'm just being a realist with the Bible. The days of those great national revivals are gone. The days of like, you know, the the, the bars closing up and people, a town drying up after, you know, a Charles Finney came through or a Billy Sunday are probably gone. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be on fire. That doesn't mean you can't be a burning and a shining light. But the idea, our nation and, and the world is so far removed from biblical truth and has done so many things that are heinous to the God of heaven that I don't think you're going to see that like that amazing favor anymore but uh we just keep gleaning you know i'm just going to keep on gleaning it but i got to reckon i i'm not going to get depressed when there aren't 500 people in the church house anymore or if there ever were right there never were there's 500 there's 500 seats there's not 500 people but i can't let it depress me i just got to go one person at a time pastor dean used to say brother it's like you're chipping them out of stone and that's what it's like. You just you got to take that time and get all get them at it, and just you get one. You know, you get one here, you get one there, and praise the Lord. Keep on keeping on. We're not, you know, the old guys were about nickels, numbers, and noses. We're not about that, right? We're about individuals because we're in the gleanings. We're in the gleanings. Verse number eight. Lord, help me finish this book, right? Lord, number eight. <laughs> then said Boaz unto Ruth, "This is beautiful. Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field." Neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Listen, not only do we have the Spirit of God, not only do we find the Savior, not only do we have a field to serve and labor in, but we have the Savior's focus. We have his vision, we have his direction, we have his help. We have him just exhorting us. Keep going, keep going. Notice what he says in verse 8. Notice he says in verse 8, the Savior's exhortation to stay in his field. He says, look at he says, daughter, right? Go not to glean in another field. You know what the Holy Spirit's trying to say to you? Keep going, brother. Keep going, sister. Don't forsake my field. Stay in the fight. Stay in the harvest. Stay in the labor. Keep on keeping on. You see verse 21? You know what Ruth the Moabitess reports that Boaz told her? Verse 21 of the chapter. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. You know where the work ends? When the harvest is done. When the church age ends and God rings the work bell and he says, that's it, come up hither, we're just supposed to keep on working, keep on laboring, keep on praying, keep on keeping on, man. It is making a difference. It is making a difference. It is making a difference. And the Holy Spirit says, keep on tracting, keep on preaching, keep on discipling, keep on waiting, keep on. When I say the harvest is done, then you can quit. That's his first exhortation. And then he says in verse 8, Again, of chapter 2, 8, the Savior's provocation. He says there, I'm sorry, verse 9, he says, let thine eyes be on the field. Doesn't that sound like Jesus in John chapter 4? Lift up thine eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The Savior's provoking you. Man, look at that big world out there. 
Look at New Jersey out there. Look at your community out there. Look at your workplace out there. Look at these streets. Man, we stand on 34 and Lloyd. You just look at the people. The, we go to these fairs, the countless people. You go to these stores and I was, the other day I felt like Jeremiah. I was so grieved I could almost cry because everybody's just like an animal gobbling up their stuff in the store. They have no idea the judgment of God abides on them. And they're just like trapped in this matrix and they're just blinded by the enemy because their heart's not right with him. But it should just break your heart. Get your eyes off yourself and look on somebody else and see what somebody else can need. That's the Savior provoking us. And then in verse 9 at the end he says, and if you get thirsty, get a drink out of the vessels. (laughs) The Savior says, I can rejuvenate you. I got this vessel called your King James Bible. There's a lot of good water in there. And if you're in labor and in the field and the sun starts beating down on you and the laborers start, you know, the other laborers get on your nerves, you know what you could do? Get a fresh drink of water and you can go on. And in verse number 11, watch what happens. Ruth was seen by Boaz. And brethren, your service is seen by your Savior. See what she said, he says there? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity and art come unto a people which thou knowest not heretofore. Just like the Spirit of God is going to reveal your works at the judgment seat of Christ, somebody shows Boaz all that Ruth has been about. Boaz saw the spirit of Ruth's actions. He saw her heart. He saw her attitude. He doesn't sit there and say how many sheaves she gleaned. He just talks about the general spirit. I've seen you turn to me. I've seen you have mercy on your mother-in-law. I've seen the attitude of heart with which you've approached your life since you met Naomi. And that's what he's rewarding her for. Guys, yes, there is a thing of quantity. I know you want to do more and more, but it's really the quality God's looking at the spirit and the attitude with which you've done the things you've done and approached your Christian life in the field. And that's what he's paying attention to. Verse number 12. This is great. The Lord recompense thy work. Woo! All the labor you thought was in vain, the tracks thrown in the garbage, the prayers that you thought had no effect. He says, I'm going to pay you back. The Lord recompense thy work and a full Reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Boaz has a full reward waiting for Ruth. The Bible says in 2 John verse 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Jesus Christ, you see, we think, I think, that you get saved And it's like, I got to pry some rewards out of his fingers. Maybe I'll get something. It's the opposite. When you got saved, God took this big backhoe and filled your treasure chest and said, it's all yours, man. I want to give you this full reward. And what happens is you and I waste it and squander it. And we hope we have something left. But we don't have to earn it. It's already there as a gift by grace. He just wants you to keep it. He says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things that we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward because He wants to give you a full reward. He wants to give you His full reward. Don't squander it. You say, how do you not squander it? Look to yourself. Judge yourself. Examine yourself. Watch yourself. Look to yourself because the Savior is looking at you. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If I'm paying attention and watching my six, 
you know what? I'm not going to lose the things that God has for me. And in verse number 16 is a great, great verse. Now, he's already promised her, I'm going to reward your work. I'm going to give you this full reward. But then in 16, while she's still laboring, he says, and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she glean them and rebuke her not. You know what that is? He says, guys, you're the reapers, right? You've got the big crop. But when you walk by on purpose, just throw some on the floor for her to pick up. And when she grows and picks her up, don't stop her. Don't rebuke her. You know what that is? God's got all those spiritual blessings for you. But you know what? Down here, he throws you some handfuls of purpose. Right? I mean, I know our blessings are primarily spiritual. They're spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I know the verse Ephesians 1.3. But you know what? Hasn't God been good to you down here? He said, man, throw that guy some food. Throw that guy a house. Throw that guy some family. Throw that guy some joy. Throw that guy some amusement parks, right? Throw that guy some stuff. I mean, God has been really, really good to us. And he doesn't rebuke us when we enjoy the things he throws down to us. You want to walk across 34 and go get ice cream on Eli? Listen, you know, (laughs) I'm only kidding. Listen, God does not, God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Right? right, And he says, don't rebuke her. When he throws you some, you know, some joy, some peace, he says, man, that's just a blessing. A handful of purpose, something he deliberately does just to give you an extra blessing. Praise Jesus. Chapter 3. God's rest is now sought for. This is Ruth preparing. And look at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her daughter, Shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now it is now is not Boaz of our kindred with whose maidens thou wast. Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. I want you to notice that Naomi pictures Israel, right? Right. Israel was the nation that had the Jewish oracles committed unto them, right? So Naomi pictures also the word of God. She's showing Ruth how to have a relationship with Boaz. And that book is the only way you're going to know how to have a relationship with your Savior. It ain't coming from staring at the sun. It ain't coming from just getting a little fuzzy feeling or a burning in your bosom like your Mormon friends. You know, you know how you get a relationship with God? Through a book. It's all through a book. Naomi is a picture of that Jewish oracle, right? Like the Word of God was committed to the Jews, showing you how to have a relationship with God. And it's actually four simple steps that she gives her in verse 3. She says, number one, wash thyself. (laughs) You want to get close to God? Clean yourself up with the washing of the water of the Word. Take this book and work on your anger and work on your lust and work on your pride and work on your envy and work on all those things that God says to put off yourself because God says, I'm a holy God and if you want to be holy, you got to be holy for I am holy. So you want to approach me and be close to me, clean up your act. That's what he says first. That's what she says first. And that's the first thing. Sanctify yourselves, man. We can all do that. Oh, what I want to do, I want to serve God. Here, you want to serve God? Here's the will of God. You ready to want the will of God? Your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That's what God says. Work, Lord, I dare you tonight. Lord, search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Shut the phone off. Shut the TV off. Turn off the computer. And just before you go to sleep at night, Lord, what do I need to work on? 
you got some pride, son. Then get into the Bible, find verses on pride, memorize them, and apply them. Get an older brother in Christ, older sister in Christ, say, I want to do discipleship. I want to work on this pride thing. And let somebody take you under their wing and work on that thing. Hey, that's if you want a relationship with Christ, a close one. You're related to Him when you're saved, but do you want to cultivate your relationship with Him? Step one is wash yourself. Step two is, and anoint thee. Anoint yourself. That means you got to get that Holy Spirit in your life. You got to really get full of that. You got to get full of that book, so that Holy Spirit you are you got you got the Holy Spirit indwelling you when you're saved. But you got to get filled with the Spirit every day. One filling, but many fillings, right? And the Bible says to the Laodicean church, "Anoint thine eyes with I say that thou mayest see." You need the Holy Spirit, that oil that's always connected to the anointing. Uh, look at verse number three. Keep going. He says, "And." Put thy raiment upon thee. He says, put on clean raiment. Take off those filthy rags of your own righteousness and put on Christ. How would Christ parent? How would Christ spouse? How would Christ work, right? Put off your works and stop putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, and get thee down to the floor but make not thyself known unto the man. He says, number four, lay at his feet. Like Mary in Luke chapter 10, who hath chosen that good part. Remember, she just sat at his feet and heard his word. You say, why does she have to lay at his feet? Because that's where you find out what he wants. You find out what he wants by taking the time to sit there and wait at his feet and hear his word and be told what you're supposed to do. But when you just get up and run out like a freight train, find out what he says. Now, verse number nine, those are, that's a, you want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's your steps right there. It's right there in the book of Ruth. Wash, anoint, put on your raiment, and get down at his feet. Verse number nine, and it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Remember, Ruth had been married to Malin, like we were married to the law. With Malin dead, Ruth is now free to be married to Boaz. With the law dead to us by the body of Christ, Romans 7, we can be married to Jesus Christ now. There's the picture, Romans 7. Because Malin has just died fairly recently, right? He dies... Uh, when they've been there for 10 years. Look at verse 11. Here's another great thing in 11. And look what, look what Boaz says to Ruth. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Jesus Christ paid the price that you might be his virtuous woman. Now I look at my wife, and there's my virtuous woman. There's my Proverbs 31 lady. But you know what? You're supposed to be church. You're supposed to be Jesus Christ, Proverbs 31 girl. He's supposed to look at his church and go, there's my virtuous woman. I paid a price far above rubies to have her. A pearl of great price. Amen? Look at verse 13. Keep going. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning 
that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning, and she lay at his feet until the morning. Please notice that this whole interaction takes place during the night. Because the church age is, is called the night in the Bible. And she rises up in the morning and slips away before anybody realizes it. And you, dear Christian, are going to slip out of here in a secret exit and the whole world's not going to know what's going on. You've been laying at his feet all night. And when the morning comes, you're going to slip out and nobody's going to know what happened. Great picture. Verse 15, I'll give you one more in chapter 3, and then we'll move into chapter 4. Ooh, I'm doing good. I think I'm going to make it, Aaron. I think I'm going to make it. All right, don't get nervous. All right, all right. Verse 15, and he said, now this is what Boaz says, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. Ruth has a veil. You know why Ruth has a veil? Because in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery. She was behind the veil. You couldn't see her. But she was, the little hints were there, but the church wasn't there. So Ruth has a veil, like the church was a hidden mystery. Ephesians 3 tells us the church was a mystery. Now we're on to chapter 4. God's rest secured and Ruth rewarded. Look at Ruth 4. Now again, you can hear the wedding bells chiming, right? Ruth 4, verse, verse 1. Then went Boaz up to the gate. And sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake, because there was another kinsman that could have redeemed uh, Ruth, uh, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And we see in chapter 4 a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And there are five things about Boaz that qualified him to be a Redeemer for Ruth. There's five things about Jesus Christ that qualifies him to redeem you. Here's number one. Number one, I guess I'll write these down. I just, I don't know why. You brought the board, Brian. I got to use it at least twice, right? Number one, the redeemer must have the right to redeem. Boaz had a right to redeem Ruth if this man couldn't do it. And Jesus Christ became a man to earn the right to redeem us. He has the right to redeem us. Nobody else. He has the right. Look at verse number 10. Look at verse 10. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malin, have I purchased to be my wife. Right? So notice number two, he's got to be willing. Jesus Christ was willing to be your Savior. Boaz was willing to redeem Ruth. He, had, he didn't have to redeem Ruth. It wasn't like it was an obligation for him. He was willing to do this. And Jesus Christ didn't have to save you. He wanted to redeem us. You know how many times in the Gospels when a leper or a blind guy came up to Jesus Christ and he said, you know, will you make me clean? You ever catch what Jesus would answer? I will. He was willing to do these things. He was willing to stop. He was willing to heal. He was willing to help. Why? Because he's good. But that qualified him as the Redeemer because he was willing. He wasn't no angel Michael like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that Michael the archangel was sent down by God to do God's bidding and redeem man and die on a stake. No, God didn't send some punk emissary. God himself so loved the world, and he stepped out and took on flesh because he wanted to redeem us. He was willing. Number three, he must have the power to redeem us. Boaz had the resources and the money to accomplish this. And Jesus Christ had no sin 
so he could die for our sins. Death couldn't hold Jesus Christ because the spirit of holiness was upon him, by which Romans 1 tells us he was resurrected from the dead. Hey, I might like Josh really good. I said, Josh, I want to die for your sins, but I got to die for mine first. And when I go in the ground, I'm going to go to hell and I can't get up. I don't have the power to redeem anybody else. Jesus Christ had the power to abolish death because he had no sin upon him. Number four, he must have the price. Boaz says, I have purchased Ruth. He had the money to do it. And Jesus, the Bible says, you're bought with a price. Jesus Christ shed his blood to pay the price so he could declare it is finished. The payment's been made. And then lastly, he must have, I'll say that, he must have the receipt. Like you go to the store and get a receipt, right? He must have the proof of purchase that God was satisfied with what he did and God approved his sacrifice. And guess what? The empty tomb, Acts chapter 17 tells us the empty tomb is God's approval and God's commendation that he raised him from the dead and therefore the whole world can know he's the savior of all men because Buddha didn't come up. The popes didn't come up. The shamans didn't come up. The rabbis haven't come up. They're all dead They're all in the ground. Nobody's come up. But one could say, they could say of him, he's not here for he is risen. That's God's stamp of approval that he's the right redeemer. And it's such a, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz that takes place in this chapter is actually one of seven marriages in the Bible that picture Christ in his church. I'll give them to you real quick. You could write or listen or just use your super memory to uh, remember these. Adam and Eve is one. Right, that's a picture of Christ in the church. Isaac and Rebekah is two. That's a picture of Christ in the church. Joseph and Asenath is three. Right, the Egyptian he marries. Right, Moses and Zipporah. Right, he marries an Ethiopian, another Gentile bride. Right, Boaz and Ruth is five. Right, a Hebrew marrying a Gentile. David and Abigail is six. And Solomon and the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon is seven. All these beautiful pictures. You know, how, you know when you go around your house, you have pictures of things that bring up good memories? You know why God puts pictures of people getting married in his Bible? Because it reminds him of the fact that his son is marrying you. That's what brings him a blessing. And verse number 13, look what happens to old Naomi here. Old bitter Naomi's not so bitter anymore. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. Watch verse 15, please. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age, for thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Please notice that Naomi, who pictures Israel, is restored after Ruth, who's the church, marries Boaz, who's Jesus Christ. Wow! Another beautiful picture of what's coming for that nation. When we get taken in, then God turns to them, and he's going to restore them and restore their life. Right? Naomi is one of those barren women in the Bible that all picture Israel. Now let's go uh, right here. 
I guess I'm not even going to erase that. Three big ideas from the book of Ruth, and then we'll close, okay? Three big ideas. Three big takeaways. Verse number 13. Some big ideas from the book of Ruth. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Um, Hopefully you could teach this to somebody else and get some principles out of it for yourself or somebody you're discipling or somebody you might be counseling. And This is like a preview commercial. I'm not didn't pick the date yet, but I would like to start, talked about it with the deacons in the fall, one of our little studies. I really like to do a, a, a short series on a Saturday morning on how to be better ministers, on how to get some principles from the Bible that we can apply to our lives and other people's lives that is practical, that'll help you be a counselor and a minister to somebody else with the principles of the Bible. We did in the spring how to evangelize. We talked about ambassadors. I want to do something about able ministers. How do we minister this book and get practical with it so when people come to us with problems and difficulties in your own life, in friends' life, it doesn't have to always be me. You can apply the Word of God to somebody else and be a minister yourself. So I don't know why I said that, but that's... Oh, we're talking about soul winning. Um, Some principles to take away. Verse 13. Please notice that Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. Oh, I was talking about principles. There's so many principles in the book of Ruth to pull out. Here's the first principle. Soul winning is not a program or a procedure. You please notice that it's the fruit of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When Ruth gets close to Boaz and comes together with him and has the intimate relationship, you know what happens? Life comes. Life is born. Life is conceived. And we could talk about principles for witnessing, give people different plans, but the thing that's going to make you the greatest ambassador and the greatest soul winner and the greatest witnesses witness is going to be you having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The fruit of souls in your life is going to be the outward outcome of an inward intimacy with Jesus Christ. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Say, I want to be a better witness. I want to be a better witness to my family. Get closer to Jesus Christ. You get closer and more lockstep with Him, and guess what? He'll start dripping on all the people around you, and the doors will open up, and the impact will happen, and you won't have to force it and manufacture it. It'll be the result of your union with Jesus Christ, your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Like Ruth, after all that service, she finally has that union with Boaz, and then life comes. It's a good reminder. Second big principle, verse 21. This is a great one. Uh, It says, And Solomon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Can I tell you something right now? Here's a second big principle. This is a great one. Your relationship with Jesus Christ can change the world. Boaz was one little Gentile dog that got married to a guy named Boaz and winds up getting in the line of David, in the line of the greatest king of Israel, a picture of Jesus Christ who's called the son of David. Why? Because she just got in a relationship with Boaz. She changed the world. Israel went from no king to having the prospect and the future of a great king. Why? Because of her union with Boaz. And you guys get close to Jesus Christ and get in a relationship with Him. You can change your world by just walking with Him. And number three. If Ruth, let's go to Ephesians. We'll end in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. 
going to read two verses, and then we'll pray. Ephesians chapter 2. So first big idea, soul winning is not a program, it's a personal relationship, it's the fruit of a personal relationship. It's not a prescription or a procedure. We talked about that a lot when we did the ambassador class. There are principles to follow to kind of steer you, but it's got to grow out of your walk with Christ. And uh, number two, your relationship can change the world. And number three, what did we say the theme of the book of Ruth was? The romance of redemption? If Ruth is all about our romance of redemption then you got to get lost in Jesus Christ's love. If it's all about love, then you got to get lost in that love, man. It's got to be a love affair and a love story in your life like it was in Ruth's life. Look at, look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians is all about the church, right? Ephesians is all about the body of Christ. Ephesians is in the New Testament what Song of Solomon is in the Old Testament. Song of Solomon is about that intimate relationship between Solomon and his Gentile bride. And Ephesians is about the intimacy that the church is supposed to have with Jesus Christ and all the aspects to it, both theoretical and practical. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, the Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, us even when we were dead in sins. Amen. The love of God saved your soul. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. First John. For God so loved the world. John 3.16. Love saved your soul, man. Is the love of God that looked down on you thrashing and failing and miserable and hopeless and said, I can't see them like that, and came down to rescue fallen sinners, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, if it was love that started the ball rolling, the author and finisher of our faith is still that God of love. It's got to be a love story between you and Jesus Christ. It's got to be a love affair between you and Jesus Christ. And in the next chapter, verse 3, you see that's the Holy Spirit's prayer for you. That you'd get lost in that love that saved you. That you wouldn't just go to Calvary, get saved, and just try to grin and bear it for the rest of your Christian life. That the love that overwhelmed you of Him dying on the cross would lead you every step of the way until He calls you home. Ephesians 3 verse 14 is Paul's prayer, but it's the Holy Spirit's prayer for you. He says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What does he want? What's he bowing his knee for? That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. You say, God, how are you going to make me strong on the inside that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith? He wants to get your heart that you being rooted and grounded in love. That's how he grounds you. That's how he roots you. So you grow right. Many a Christian is growing out of duty, is growing out of obligation, is growing out of vain repetition, and they're not growing right. That's why they're easily offended. That's why they walk out of church. That's why they close their Bible. That's why they're bitter. That's why they're angry, because they're doing out of duty, machinery, obligation, willpower, discipline. God says that's only going to get you so far until you break. You got to be rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth 
knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. You say, God wants you to look up at the heavens and see this big universe out there and remember in the next verse that He loves you with a love that could fill that universe. And that's what's going to give you strength and that's what's going to help you stand and that's what's going to lead you to grow. And in the richest book of the New Testament, probably the book of Ephesians, God says right smack dab in the middle, I want you right there. I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God, the, 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 the fullness that could fill the universe by knowing the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. I get that out of Ruth. I get reminded of that out of Ruth. I hope that's a good reminder to go home on to now. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. And his love is everlasting. Let's, let's bow our heads. Thank you for your kind attention here at home. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful book, Lord. Wow. I mean, I'm not just talking about the Bible, Lord. Your book of Ruth, Lord, is like just a master stroke of your brush, Lord. It's just rich and encouraging to the soul, provoking to the spirit, Lord. It reproves us, but it comforts us, Lord. I pray you just do all the things that you could accomplish through this book in the hearts and minds of your people now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. amen.